0: This past week, uh, before I came up here, I was helping my son with a project that he brought home from school, which was a time capsule, which was a shoebox that had been, they decorated in an art class, and they put in an assortment of things in there, so a drawing that they'd done, a handprint, and like a little couple of line poem that each one had composed and written out, a few other little things like that. It was very sweet. And um, then they had brought it home and there had been a little bit of it to finish at home. And my son was very excited about this. This this concept of a time capsule was very novel to him. He wasn't familiar with this before and he was explaining it to me. You know, we're going to put all these things in the box and then we're going to seal it up and I'm going to put it in the closet. And when I'm a grown up, I'm going to take it out and show it to you again. He was very amused by this. And the piece of it that had been sent home to to complete with a parent was a little questionnaire, you know, with things like, what's your favorite food? Uh, Who are your best friends? What's your favorite place to visit? You know, things like that to to get a sense of, you know, who this little person is at this point in their life, which no doubt will be very uh, fun to pull out of the closet in however many years. But we were going through the questionnaire together, and I was filling in the answers for him, and we got to a question which kind of uh, made him pause. My son is usually very authoritative. Like, he knew exactly who his best friends were. He knew exactly what his favorite food was. (laughs) But we got to this one question that said, what is your dream? And that kind of gave him pause, and he kind of thought for a second. He said, I don't know what that means. And I had to think for a second, too, because, like, you know, that could be a really deep one, right? (laughs) But I decided to give him a relatively concrete interpretation, so I said, well, you know, maybe that means, like, something that you'd really like to do someday, something that might be really fun to do maybe when you're older, something like that. So he thought for a second, and he said, I'd like to fly. <laughs> I thought, well, you know, he's been, this child's been on a lot of airplanes, like, actually way more airplanes that I would have liked. Uh, we have family on both coasts, so we've done a lot of much more traveling with young children <laughs> across the country on planes that I would have liked. Um, so I thought, well, do you mean like you'd like to be a pilot and maybe fly a plane or you know, be an astronaut and fly in a spaceship? And he, he said, no, I'd like to fly with my body. And <laughs> I thought, you go, you, know, <laughs> you go, kid. <laughs> I'd like to do that too. So we had this great conversation about, you know, how we both have dreams. All of us usually have dreams about, you know, having the, that ability to fly and what it might feel like. And, you know, who knows? The way the technology is going, you know, maybe he will have a chance one day to fly with his body. Maybe he'll be the one to figure it out. um But uh, he's at that point, he's six years old. (laughs) He's at that point where like imagination, the world of imagination and the world of reality haven't quite totally separated out yet. You know, so it was clear that in his little mind, you know, that might be, you know, maybe I might go out and fly with my body, you know, like Spider-Man or something one day, Batman. But to, um, you know, to me, (laughs) at the point that I'm at in my life, You know, I'm I'm pretty sure that I'm not just gonna be walking outside the front door and you know, putting up my arms and saying, Okay, here we go (laughs) You know, and taking off into the sky. Um, you know, at least not with some significant chemical assistance. (laughs) 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 And you know, that, that understanding comes partly out of just like a knowledge of the laws of physics. Um, understanding the design of the human body, and partly it comes out of experience. So I've tried a lot of different things with this body. I haven't found flight to be within its capacities yet, so far. So the the point of this little opening anecdote is that um, a lot of us come to practice often with a little bit of that six-year-old mind. (laughs) Especially early on in practice. You know, we have a dream, you know, what's your dream that <laughs> brought you here? We have a dream to be uh, to be free, however we think of that or language that for ourselves, uh, to be free of something painful in our past, something difficult in our present, um, to be free of some difficult tendency of the mind or the body, the heart, um, to be free from stress or anxiety or depression or maybe just as some of you expressed today to just be free of thinking for a little while you know we have a dream um, but then we progress in the practice you know we we put the the bottom to the cushion you know we put in our time in the practice and we mature we grow up in the practice we we talk about this sometimes maturing in the practice being more mature in the practice or in the dharma which is not related to age at all, has nothing to do with chronological age, but again to understanding and to experience a kind of spiritual maturity that's come out of just spending the time, exploring the mind, exploring the body, um, exploring this experience that we call me and coming to know for ourselves more and more clearly, more and more accurately, um, what, what's the potential here, what are the possibilities for us and what are the, the constraints, what are the parameters that we have to work within, what are the natural laws of being a human being and being this particular human being that define kind of the range of motion that's available to us, the possibilities that are available to us at, a, at any given point in time. It's not that those don't change, obviously. But just as we can't, you know walk out the front door and say, "Okay, <laughs> I'm off." Um, we can't just come in the front door here too, and along with our cell phone, you know, turn in our stress, turn in ang- our anxiety, <laughs> turn in our knee pain, turn in our obsessions. Um, unfortunately, it's not that easy. And even if this is your first retreat, you know, second full day, first retreat, by now you are probably getting this. (laughs) That we can't just shut it all off. That there's a power, a power of what we call conditioning, causes and conditioning, all the momentum of everything that's brought us to this moment that we carry on from moment to moment, which doesn't just fall away. And sometimes this is our what we might call our first insight, the starting point for our practice. Many people have had, many of us have had this insight by the time that we arrive here, um, which is just simply realizing what a mess our minds are and that we can't just turn them off. And unfortunately, many of us who uh, give meditation a try, experience, uh, experiment with the practice in some setting, maybe at a yoga class, local class, working from an app or a book. Um, many people never get past this first insight. And this first insight really is, is the gate beyond which very few people carry on and actually continue to explore the mind. Um, outside of uh, here, outside of this setting, outside of the classes that I teach, Um, you know, I routinely bump into people and, you know, kind of tell them what I do with my very limited spare time. (laughs) And 90% of the time, invariably, you know, over the last decades, even as meditation has become more commonplace and more just kind of an ordinary thing to do in our society, 90% of people will say something like, oh, yeah, you know, I tried that in my yoga class once and my mind was just a mess. And I didn't, I didn't keep up with it. You know, or, oh, I wish I could do that. That would be so great for me. But my mind is such a mess, I just can't do it. You know, which is a total uh, contradiction, right? It's because our minds are such a mess that <laughs> we need to do it. Um, but most people don't get get past that initial recognition of just how out of control the mind is. That becomes a real stumbling block, and they never get to the point of actually doing this or doing something like this, you know, putting the, the bottom to the cushion and getting down to the business of trying to do something about the mess in the mind. So why is that? It all comes down to attitude, right? It all comes down to that attitude, to what we notice in the mind when we first look. It's not that those of us that are here are uh, smarter. <laughs> Or uh, more realized, particularly, you know, than all the other people that might give meditation a try or have a casual thought to give it a try. But we've got an attitude that somehow something in us has said, yeah, maybe, you know, maybe something can come with us. It's worth a try. I've got enough confidence in myself that I can I think I can do this. I can go for a week, I can go for three months, I can go for two years, <laughs> however long it might be and see if it's really possible to improve the situation. You know, that attitude is pivotal. You know, it, it all hinges on that. How we relate to noticing what's in the mind. Do we think it's possible, or do we just give up immediately? So you know, it's all well and good to have uh, a well-stocked meditative toolbox. And that's a lot of what we spend our time here talking about and discussing with you guys. um, You know how to work with the breath as an anchor, or pick an alternate anchor. Different ways to approach the walking meditation. What do we do when we're eating? um, How does the schedule work? You know how do we tailor the schedule? All of those kinds of nuts and bolts of the the process of meditation, the process of practice. And that's all very useful. (laughs) You know that's all good information to have. It's good to have a well stocked meditative toolbox. But unless we've got a healthy attitude to the, to the work that we're doing here, none of that is gonna be of any use whatsoever. <laughs> um, the attitude really is the, the horse that has to go before the cart. All the other stuff, the techniques, the, the strategies, all of that is the cart that follows behind the attitude. And conversely, if we've got a healthy attitude, if we've got a balanced attitude towards what we are doing here, Then the rest of that stuff, all the details, tends to work itself out without a whole lot of anxiety, without a whole lot of effort. It tends to fall into place very naturally if we're approaching the practice in a positive way. So first and foremost, if we want to get anywhere, we have to come to terms with this conditioned nature of the mind, these causes and conditions that we talk about all the time which is just simply recognizing, as we inevitably do here on retreat, how pre-programmed we are, how much is programmed into the circuitry, uh, both the body and the mind, that there's this huge, vast network of factors, conditions, uh, elements that have brought us right to this particular moment and this particular experience. The Buddha said that uh, it's impossible to make sense of, this is what we call karma, the web of karma, all of the causes and conditions that have led to this moment. It's so vast, and it's so complicated, and it's so mysterious, and it stretches so far back into illimitable time that it's impossible to figure out what all of the factors are that have led to this moment of anxiety, (laughs) this moment of neck pain. Like it stretches back to, you know, at least to the Big Bang, you know, (laughs) which if we think about it is really true, right? Everything had to happen exactly how it's happened in the entire universe, maybe universes beyond, who knows, at least in this lifetime, maybe lifetimes before, who knows, to get us to this particular moment of experience it really is mind-boggling to contemplate. So to start off with, you know, we've inherited a certain DNA. Our bodies are literally uh, programmed in certain ways from birth. Um, there's the conditions in the womb, there's everything that happens as when we're young children and growing, the injuries we might have, the illnesses we might develop, things that we do with the body, um, how we've taken care of it. All of that gives us a certain range of possibilities now. Again, it's not that that's fixed, you know, that can change, according, again, according with causes and conditions. But in this particular moment, you know, there's a range of possibilities open to us. And it's the same, if not more so, in the mind. So again, there are certain tendencies of mind, certain uh, temperamental qualities that are just programmed into how the mind is wired. Uh, Again, by heredity, by the conditions in the womb, by our early childhood experiences, and by everything that we've experienced up to this moment. What we've done with the mind, the choices that we've made. And all of that gives us, again, a certain mental range of possibilities. Things that we might be able to do with the mind. Things that we might be able to develop. I I tend to think of, you know, kind of the mind-body system, this thing that I call me, (laughs) as kind of like a big ocean liner, like the Queen Elizabeth II. Uh, Or actually, to be perfectly honest, what comes up for me is the love boat. (laughs) That that was my generation. Like, I have that that image of, you know, the horn blows and the ship pulls out of Puerto Vallarta, you know. (laughs) Um, But if you've ever seen one of these things, you know, they're like a floating city. They're just like mammoth. They're so huge. There's so much on them. Um, And you don't just, you know, you don't just turn the love boat on a dime. You don't just go, you know, and do a right turn. You have to kind of slowly, slowly, you know, little by little you know, at work it out of port, edge it did out of port little by little. So uh, we come to see more and more and to um, develop a healthy respect and to accept to some extent that, you know, this me, this mind-body system is a lot like that. You know, we're really a lot like that. Uh, There's a certain range of possibilities open at any given moment, and um, we have to work within that. We have to work within those constraints. We don't really have much choice. I remember um, very clearly the first time that I was given the instructions to um, recognize and, and name my various thought trains. Uh, which can be an incredibly useful exercise if you haven't tried it yet to really try to get a handle on what are the different tracks, what are the different tracks that are laid down in the mind, what are the different paths, the different types of thought trains that to, to tend to, to run through the mind over and over and over again. Uh, it's a little bit of a variation on the noting tool, so as we're noticing the thoughts coming through the mind, we might start to see, okay, there's the planning track, the planning train, that one always runs down kind of that way, ends up in a similar place. And there's the, the fantasy track, you know, there's a little bit of variety there, but it tends to, again, kind of run in the same way, lead to the same kinds of uh, experience. So we can start to, to get a handle on that. Um, and, and put a name to those. One of my teachers recommend, recommended I give a title <laughs> to each of my stories, you know, so it, when I first started sitting, I was getting ready to get married, so I had the wedding planner uh, story, <laughs> you know? and then a few other ones. I had a work thing going on, and there is conflict with a friend, so you know, we can come up, we can be a little playful about it, you know, death in the afternoon, or <laughs> pride and prejudice, you know, uh, different stories that we have going on all the time. And we get to know what those are, right? And those of you that have been at this for a while, we, we tend to know. And those of you that are starting to get into it now over the course of the week, you'll probably start to pick up on this. What are what are kind of your tracks? Um, but starting to see this for this first time was really mind-blowing for me because, you know, I'd had that initial insight, oh, the mind's all over the place, and I felt like the mind just does all sorts of stuff. There's, it's, it's just all over the place. There's no rhyme or reason to, to it. You know, I'm thinking about this and then I'm thinking about that and thinking about the other. You know, initially, it just looked like there was no pattern. But then as I started to look more and more carefully with, with more and more intention, I started to see, oh yeah, there is, some, <laughs> there is some rhyme and reason there. There is some order within the chaos. So that exploration can be really fascinating. It can be an approach that we use, you know, I use this at home too still a lot at times when the mind's really busy, you know, and I can't really just sit and, you know, calmly follow the breath or just open and kind of go with hearing, you know, when the mind's really racing, I find it still in my home practice very helpful to try to tease out, okay, what are the stories that the mind keeps coming back to? And there's an odd kind of uh, comfort for that, in that for me. (laughs) Like, just seeing that, okay, there is some causality, there's some rationale to this. Things aren't just arising at random, there are causes and conditions in operation. This is all lawful, laws of nature playing out. And for many of us, this is the second insight that we tend to get the second insight into the workings of the mind. That, yes, there is very often chaos in the mind, but there is order within the chaos. That things happen lawfully, not for no reason. And some of you were actually starting to report this today in the interview groups that I had, that you're starting to be able to pick up on, it really is just like maybe a couple or a few thought trains right now that are occupying you know 90% of the bandwidth. And that can be really helpful to see the more we start to see just what the mind's getting up to, then the more uh, familiar and the more comfortable we can get with it, with our obsessive habits. The more um, ease there can be around it, the more we can relax around it and approach it with a little bit more uh, equanimity. It doesn't have to be such a big deal. So it's not necessarily that we need to uh, change those thought trains that come and come over and over again, you know, they're going to do their thing based on causes and conditions. Uh, it's more about changing our relationship with them, coming to be in greater ease with them, not struggling with them so much. And again, in the groups today, a number of uh, the older yogis, uh, again, not chronologically age older, but older as and more mature in the practice, um, we're describing this really beautifully, how... Um, you know, they've been coming here for X number of years, sometimes quite a few years, five, 10, 15 years. And they came into retreat expecting to have sort of the same dramas, the same challenges that they've had for however many retreats. Um, but something's a little different this time. The mind's not struggling the way it has in the past. The mind's not reacting the way that it had in the past. There's more of an ability to just kind of go with the flow, let the conditioning play out the way that it tends to play out, which it still does, and just kind of, you know, let the waves roll over us and just maintain a little bit more balance in the midst of all that. So there's no longer the expectation, that six-year-old mind expectation (laughs) that the ship is going to just... suddenly turn on a dime that things are going to dramatically change just because we've walked in the door of IMS. Um, I'm sure we've all heard the the phrase, wherever you go, there you are. (laughs) And now we're here. We're the same people we were before we got here. We're the same people we'll be after we leave here. And it's just not realistic to expect that what what comes up here for us is going to be particularly different than what comes comes up for us uh... the rest of the time just here hopefully we get a chance to see it more clearly and to see it in a different light this is part of the maturing of the practice coming to understand more and more deeply that we don't need to change what's going on and we hear this over and over and over again my teacher said this to me for years and I just didn't i didn't really believe it (laughs) for years but we honestly don't need to change what's happening to do this practice we just simply need to be aware of it. That's what will transform the relationship. So that transformation comes naturally with practice, but it's also helpful to, to remind ourselves and to give ourselves little pep talks periodically, especially when something challenging comes up. We can remind ourselves, okay, there's a reason why this has come up. You know, I had this experience when I was a child, so of course, you know, here it is again. It's arisen in this form. You know, or I've got this thing that's been going on in my life at home. It was bringing up a lot of powerful emotions before I got here. So, of course, of course it's arising again. Uh, or there, there was a song that I heard when I was 18 that I really loved. <laughs> Maybe haven't thought about it in a couple of decades, but it's still in there. Here it is again and again and again and again. <laughs> you know? uh, I don't know if any of you saw the... Um, uh, the movie about, uh, what was the name of it? It was the, the cartoon about the girl kind of showing the inner workings of her mind. Do you remember that? Inside Out. Inside Out, yeah, Inside Out, um, which is a great Dharma movie if you get a chance to check it out, but it's kind of portrays the inner workings of the mind of a tween girl with um, characters playing the roles of different aspects of her mind. So there's anger and there's joy and there's sadness and you know different elements of her mind but there's a couple of little minions working down in the basement of her mind that keeps sending up the memory of this really annoying commercial that she saw when she was a little kid. And every time it comes up, that you know they're, they're down there like, oh, let's send it up again. <laughs> and then it comes up and she's like, no, not again. <laughs> anyway, we all get that on retreat, right? Um, it makes us a lot more careful about what we put into the memory banks because we really get to see. You never know when you're going to have to re-experience it. <laughs> so you know we can't beat the conditioning we've got to work with it we we can either struggle with it or we can work with it those are only two options but we can't stop it it's just part of human nature so it really behooves us to uh, be light about it and to take it in stride as much as possible this is a very famous uh, poem from Rumi that you may have heard called the guest house this being human is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all, even if they are a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture. Still, treat each guest honorably. They may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice. Meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whatever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. So we start more and more to relate to our experience in this way. You know, to see it as just um, a a flow of visitors, a parade of visitors, a parade of floats passing through, passing by, you know, however it feels to us um, and not uh, necessarily anything that we have to take responsibility for, <laughs> which is a huge relief when we start to get this. Uh, we don't have to take it all so seriously. We don't have to take it all so personally. We start to see that we're not actually the ones making all that happen. <laughs> we, really, we start to see this more and more which is another insight we, we start to understand as we mature in practice. So we start to see just how little control we have over the mind and body. You know, until we sit down and do a practice like this, if you ask the average person on the street, they really think they're doing it. <laughs> they really think they're in control. Of course I know what I'm thinking. Yeah, I'm thinking what I want to think. You know, I'm doing what I want to do with my body but we start to see here uh, just how much of a fantasy that is just how imaginary that sense of control is so much of it it's not that we don't have any control but we tend to go through life believing that we have a lot more control than we actually do you know we didn't you know who ordered sleepiness on this retreat for the first couple of days anybody put in an order for just incessant sleepiness you know, did anybody order? You know, obsessive thinking for the for the first couple of days of the retreat. You know, we would have ordered something else <laughs> if we'd been given a choice. Things come due to causes and conditions. So the more we see this, hopefully, the more we can have a sense of humor about it. Um, a sense of humor is absolutely essential to this practice. If you haven't started cultivating it yet, I encourage you, uh, laugh at it. Laugh at it all, whenever possible. Um, if we can't laugh at what's going on in the mind, this is going to be a grim process. <laughs> because the mind is just, uh, it'll get up to all sorts of stuff. It's either, either we see it as a tragedy or we see it as a comedy. It's gonna be a lot easier if we see it as a comedy. I remember going in for an interview with one of my um, Burmese teachers at a time in my practice when I was um, particularly seeing things on this level, seeing the causality, seeing the conditionality, really seeing how like, you know, a moment of pain led to a moment of anger, led to certain kinds of thoughts, led to intensifying of the pain, you know, this kind of sequence of one thing tumbling into another and all the, the causes and conditions rolling along with this huge uh, power. And how it had all come out of earlier things in my life and earlier conditioning and just really seeing things on that level, which happens sometimes. And I went into interview with my my little Burmese teacher who was maybe about seventy, you know, bald, obviously, in orange robes, looked a lot like Yoda. This particular teacher, he had cute ears. <laughs> but you know, usually I'd come in for my interview with him and he'd be you know, very stern, as the the Burmese masters tend to be, you know, give me my instructions and ring the bell. And I came in this day and kind of reported how I was seeing all this, and he broke into this huge smile. Uh, He he started, he decided to give me a little pop quiz. He said, why are you having knee pain? Which I'd been interviewing with him for a while, so he knew what was going on in my my mind and body, and I thought for a second, uh, causes and conditions, He was like, yeah, yeah, and he said, you know, why are you thinking about your mother? Causes and conditions, you know, we just, he went on, we went on, like, he went on like this for a while, we just started laughing, you know, he'd ask me a question and laugh and I'd answer and he'd laugh and we just yucked it up, you know, it's, it's so funny really when we start to see it, it's just so impersonal, just these conditions playing out, rolling along, not anything we chose, some of them totally ridiculous, we got to laugh. One of the things that attracted me to this practice when I first started coming here, the first retreats that I sat in this tradition were here, is that the, the people that I met, the old yogis that I talked with, and the teachers, when you know they talked or I talked with them, um, they seemed to laugh a lot. <laughs> they just seemed to have this kind of lightness about them um, that was very intriguing, that was very attractive. You know, again, I was like, I'd, I'd like to get a little bit of that. You know? That was one of the things that drew me in here. And I find definitely as I go along, you know, the mind is still basically a mess. (laughs) There's still a lot of difficult things in there, a lot of conditioning that's just still there, you know, still doing its thing. Um, But I do laugh more now. I do laugh at it all more now. It is lighter now. It's especially important to have a sense of humor because... Uh, the truth is that for some of our most deeply conditioned, our most painful tendencies, um, they're going to be there for a long time. You know, we, we, need to get, we need to grow up and, and recognize that, of course, the things that got in there early, the things that got in there very powerfully, that have made a big impact on us, they, get, they make a very strong imprint and it's only natural, it's the natural law of this human system that they're going to be in there and they're going to be doing their thing and playing themselves out in various ways for a long time. So it's (laughs) it's especially important to have a sense of humor around those. I remember uh, hearing from someone that went to another center Um, that the teacher had put up on the door of the room where she did her interviews, a little card so that you would see it when you came into the room for your interview that said, it takes as long as it takes. (laughs) Which is all too true. So patience, patience and perseverance are also really helpful attitudes for this practice. We really gotta to, to look at it as a long haul endeavor. Um, practice is just like anything else in life. So again, it follows the same laws of nature, and the same uh, constraints as any other activity, any other pursuit that we take up. So we will get out of it what we put into it. You know, we come for a one week retreat, we'll get a certain amount of benefit. Uh, we come for two one week retreats. We'll get more. We come for a three-month, we'll get more. We do it for a decade, we'll get more. <laughs> you know, it's, it's just like anything else. Just like anything else we might want to cultivate or develop in life. The more time and effort that we put into it, the, the more we'll get out of it. And, of course, it's up to each of us to decide how much we want to devote to this kind of practice or some other practice or to spiritual life in general or even if we you know, want to devote anything to it. Um, that's a choice that we all have to make, but we need to recognize that there's no free lunch. <laughs> you don't get something for nothing. So it can happen that we come on you know one week retreat and it feels like um, that's a lot, which it is. You know, it's a big commitment to sit for a week, but we might come out of one week of of retreat here and go home, and lo and behold, you know, those same difficult habits, tendencies of mind and body, that same painful pattern is still happening. Then we might feel like, oh, it didn't work. I guess this isn't the right path for me. This is another place where people fall away from the practice. Because there's this unrealistic expectation you know, that there's going to be some magic bullet. One week of practice, and, and we should have it, or it's a failure. Um, it's an ongoing process. It's a lifelong process, you know, the, the traditional understanding is that it's a multiple lifetime practice. You know, the, the traditional teachings talk about, you know, hundreds, thousands of lifetimes that the Buddha went through, you know, working on his practice in various ways before reaching full enlightenment, which is not to say that there can't be short-term benefits, and presumably you all have had some short-term benefits or at least have faith that there is or you wouldn't be here. And there will be benefits that come in the short term, but again, you know, the more we put into it, the longer we keep at it, at it, the more benefits we'll see, and the deeper they'll be, and the more transformative they'll be. So we need to be realistic about that. You know, we don't get to just you know, come on a one-week retreat and then fly off. <laughs> Some of those karmic knots we're going to have to revisit over and over and over again. We're going to have to spend a lot of time looking at them until the causes and conditions are ripe for them to shift. And this is the good news about being conditioned beings, highly conditioned beings, is that we're not fixed. It's, we're, not, uh, we're never static. You know, There's not one point that we arrive at, and that's me. And it's never going to change. And I'm never going to be capable of anything different. <laughs> Uh, even very late in life, you know, it's, it's wonderful to see the the modern um, research really affirming this. The, you know, there used to be this idea some decades ago, many of you probably understand this better than I do, that you reached a certain point in adulthood, maybe around 25, 30, and then you were kind of set for life, more or less. Um, but, but modern research is really dispelling that idea that really actually we have the neuroplasticity, <laughs> We have the capacity all throughout our lives, if we make the right kind of effort, to continue to evolve, to continue to change, that there's always the potential for transformation at at every point in our lives. So that's the good news about conditionality. Uh, The conditions that have been set in the past, the things that we've experienced, the program we've got in the past, that we can't do anything about. That's what's giving us this moment. But in this moment, we're laying down the conditions for the future. So that makes then the choices that we make in this present moment, how we use the mind, how we relate to the mind, how we relate to the body, how we relate to our experiences, how we relate to each other. You know, when we look at it in that light, from that perspective, all of those choices become incredibly important and incredibly powerful. There's a real sense of agency in that. You know, this is the the promise that the Buddha held out, that if we apply ourselves, if we cultivate the mind in, in wholesome ways, that there is a real possibility for change and transformation. This is a story that I really like from the traditional teachings. It's the story of the venerable Nangala Kula, who is said to have been a very poor uh, farm worker, a laborer. And he didn't own any land of his own. He was just a worker, so he would be, you know, he would hire himself out to work in other people's fields working from sunrise to sunset, day in, day out, no days off. So this was uh, very demanding work, very difficult, hard physical labor. And from this he would earn just barely enough to keep himself alive. You know, he'd just get just a subsistence living out of this. Until one day a monk came along past his field and saw him at work there with his dragging his heavy plow, his kind of dirty old tattered clothes. And the monk came up and talked to him a little bit, asked him how his life was going, <laughs> and urged him to, to come along and follow him and come to the monastery. He, and the monk told uh, Nangala that the monastery was a place where he would still have to work very hard, but he'd be able to get great benefits in exchange for his hard work as opposed to his current situation where he was working really hard and getting hardly anything for it. So Nangala didn't really understand what would be involved in becoming a monk. This was not something he'd had any contact with before. But he figured, you know, he looked at the monk. The monk seemed happy, he seemed well-fed. <laughs> and he figured, well, it can't be any worse than what I'm doing now. So he went along with the monk carrying his, his heavy plow with him, which was the only thing that he owned. And he got to the monastery, and he was ordained, and he undertook the precept, as you do when you ordain, as a Buddhist monk, to um, give up worldly possessions, to give up personal property, apart from a few very basic items. And his preceptor told him to go outside the monastery walls, outside the gate, and to find some place to leave his, his things, his things from lay life, his few clothes and his plow, which were the only things that he owned. So Nangala did that. He went out and there was an old tree with kind of a hollow in the base of it. So he just stuck his stuff in there. And for a while, uh, the Venerable Nangala now, ordained as a monk, was quite content at the monastery. Uh, He was eating better. He was sleeping better. He was treated better. He really enjoyed the the ease and the the calm um, of the lifestyle compared to what he'd been doing. Uh, But after a while... (laughs) He got bored. We can relate to that. <laughs> and he started running into difficult mental states. You know, he, he did start to get quieter. He did start to get more sensitive. You know, we know how this goes. And he started encountering things in his, his own mind that were a little bit difficult. And he thought, okay, well this has been nice, <laughs> but I'm out of here. So he started to make his way out of the monastery, but as he was going, he caught a glimpse of the tree where he had left his plow and his old clothes and immediately came back to him in a rush what his life had been like before he came to the monastery. And he lost all desire <laughs> to leave the monastery. He was uh, recommitted to the monastic life. He was filled with a renewed sense of purpose to really persevere and to realize some of the peace and freedom that he sensed that the, some of the other monks in the community around him really had, had realized. But he still didn't have an easy time in his practice. He would quite often feel bored. He would quite often feel frustrated. Um, But now whenever that happened, he started to, to go outside, just a little bit outside the monastery gates and go to the tree where he left his plow and his clothes. And he would reflect. He would contemplate the misery of his former life. And that would give him enough of a little boost of energy and inspiration to keep going on for a little longer. And it said that for a long time, you know, for many years, this, was, this became his routine, that he would go out to the tree a couple times a week, and, uh, uh, as if he, almost as if he was going for interviews with a teacher, which uh, didn't go unnoticed by the other monks at the monastery. They thought, what is this guy up to? Um, And when they asked him, he would respond and say, I need to go and consult my teacher. (laughs) So for many years, his fellow monks teased him about this. And uh, they were quite surprised when all of a sudden, one day, he stopped going out to visit the tree. Uh, So the next time that the Buddha came around to to visit and give some teachings, the monks asked him about this. Why isn't Nangala going out to the tree anymore? And the Buddha said, well, it's very simple. No? He's an Arahant now, <laughs> he's fully enlightened, Arahant being a fully enlightened being. So he didn't need his teacher in the tree anymore. Um, but for a lot of us, you know, we've, many of us have that teacher in the tree, right? We have that, that painful thing that we have to visit over and over and over again, comes up over and over and over for us again. And uh, it can be difficult But in a way it also uh, can be very motivating. It reminds us why we're doing this. It, it, hopefully we can draw on those difficult things for inspiration, for motivation, to keep us going, uh, to remind us that that's not what we want to go back to, you know, whatever it was that was so painful, whatever it was that we were doing that was uh, unhealthy, unskillful. I really love some of these old stories um, uh, just because there's these aspects of them, the characters in them tend to be so relatable, a lot of them. It really blows my mind 2,500 years ago as such a different time and place and civilization, Um, but still in so many ways, very much like our own time, you know, we can really relate to this monk and to his his challenges. So there's a lot to be gotten from those stories, I find, even though they may sound a little uh, archaic. So just one more skillful attitude that I want to mention at the end of the talk here, um, which is one that we'll be talking about over and over again as the retreat goes on, uh, which is the importance of cultivating an attitude of caring and compassion for ourselves. Arguably, this is the most important one, the most helpful attitude. Um, When I pay attention, uh, when I'm quiet in retreat, I'm still uh, often amazed at the things that I will say to myself, at the the trips that I'll lay on myself, and just how harsh and demanding and judgmental I can be towards myself. Um, You know, I'll I'll say things to myself that I would never say to a friend, right? (laughs) Things that you would never say to someone you really loved. Um, I'll, I'll feel things towards myself, again, that I would never feel towards a friend, things that I would never lay on them. And many of us have that kind of conditioning. And that too is part of causes and conditions that uh, we absorb You know, through the messages from our society or from our families, our community, um, the experiences that we've had in life. And so it's just important to recognize that conditioning. That's another one that can be hard to really take in is just how um, much animosity we may have towards ourselves in there. And it's important to begin to cultivate a greater friendship with ourselves. So the loving kindness practice, this chant that we're doing in the evenings, and bringing in that attitude uh, throughout the week as we practice is really, really supportive. I find it really helpful to remember on retreat uh, over and over again, or to reflect for myself, why am I here? That's, this is always a good one to come back to. Why am I here again? Um, not in the superficial sense, which usually there's some immediate reason why I'm here. i got something going on in my life, or there's some particular bugaboo going on with me emotionally that I want to explore. You know, there's, there's those kinds of superficial reasons for all of us. But if we look, and if we look, and if we look, and we uncover those layers of gunk that kind of cover up the heart, then more and more we can hopefully start to get in touch with in the heart, <laughs> within the heart, <laughs> for each of us, that there's, there's that desire for happiness. That's there in all of us. I, don't, I, I honestly believe that never gets extinguished. It just gets covered up. Uh, so one of the opportunities we have here on retreat is to start to uncover it, peel off the layers. Maybe we just get a little glimmer of it now and then in the course of the retreat. Oh yeah, there's that deep desire for, for happiness. Again, however we language that, however we conceive that, we honestly care underneath all the layers of gunk. We honestly care about ourselves. We honestly want to be truly happy, truly peaceful. We honestly really do want what is genuinely good for ourselves. And it can be a process of allowing ourselves to feel that. For some of us, we've got a lot of resistance built up to actually owning that. But the Buddha said, and we, we see for ourselves as we get more in contact with it, that that impulse to care for ourselves is entirely appropriate. Entirely normal, natural, healthy, and appropriate. There's nothing selfish about it. There's nothing self-centered about it. It's completely appropriate that we care about ourselves and that we try to seek what's good in life for ourselves. Um, if for no other reason, that, that, then that's what's going to allow us to then offer that same goodness to others around us. We can only offer as much genuine love and compassion to others as we, as we actually feel for ourselves. It's all related. If we can't see that spark in the heart that really longs for happiness in ourselves, then we can't connect with it in others. We have to be able to see it here first. So, it, so that's, again, a, an aspect of the practice. We do it for ourselves, but there's no separating it out from what we do for others. I came across this great quote Uh, I don't trust people who don't love themselves and yet tell me I love you. (laughs) There's an African saying, which is, be careful when a naked person offers you a shirt. (laughs) That's from Maya Angelou. (laughs) I love that one. (laughs) So if we do nothing else during our time here but come into a greater sense of connection with our own genuine caring and concern, if we can just develop a little bit more friendship and friendliness and kindness towards ourselves when we're here. That will have been time extremely well spent. So let's sit for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org